everybody. It's Jeff from Choose Awareness. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is episode number four. And this one is going to be a little bit different than the previous ones. The vision for Choose Awareness has always been to help people, including myself, learn about others so that we can all love others better. And it's that learning about others that requires us to consciously choose to be aware. But the journey isn't meant to end once we simply educate ourselves and learn about others. Instead, the hope has always been for that newfound awareness of different perspectives to challenge our own thoughts and ideas and hopefully lead us on some self-reflection and then maybe revising our ideas, allowing our ideas to evolve. And that's what this episode hopes to be. But unlike the previous ones, which all involved me interviewing other people, this one is going to be just me sharing about how some of my own ideas have evolved when it comes to three myths that I previously used to believe, but I think were impeding my ability to truly understand racism and what it really means to be anti-racist. So all of this is going to be thoughts I've had for some time now and thoughts that I've wanted to share for a while, but I felt like trying to express them all in a written blog would just be so difficult or At the very least, it would be super long. So I thought, why not make a podcast episode out of it? And so here we are. So that's the idea for the episode. Uh, All right, let's get to it. Hey, everyone, it's Jeff from Choose Awareness. As always, thanks for listening. So this episode is all about me sharing some of my own ideas and how I've reshaped my thinking when it comes to three things about racism and anti-racism. More specifically, it's going to be me unpacking these three ideas that I've decided to label as myths and how I came to think that. Since this is the Choose Awareness podcast, after all, and part of choosing to be aware is to be honest and vulnerable and evolve in our thinking. That's certainly been the case for me lately as I'm striving to be anti-racist. So I thought, let's share these thoughts. So these are some things I've been wrestling with for some time now, and a lot of it can be traced back to two books, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, and How to Be Anti-Racist, both of which are by Ibram X. Kendi. And I, like many others, consider him to be a thought leader, a leading thought leader, the leading thought leader when it comes to anti-racism. I mean, he's just such a scholar and an incredible wordsmith. He has an incredible way of making such complex and layered things like racism and anti-racism so easy to break down and understand, for me at least. And so when I had the conversation with Jessica and Kathy for the second podcast, I was in the middle of reading Stamp. And when I had the conversation with Kadir for the third episode, I was in the middle of reading How to Be Anti-Racist. And so I'd say on top of those three friends sharing some of their great ideas, and on top of me having some other conversations with some other friends, these two books have really wrecked me in a good way. I mean, they've, (laughs) they've challenged me, they've encouraged me to rethink some things that I've thought personally for quite a long time, I've even written about on the blog before, But these books have really helped me identify three myths, like I said, that I've realized I've come to believe and they're clouding my understanding and maybe even limiting my own ability and effectiveness at being anti-racist. And so if you're someone who agrees with one of them or all of them, perhaps after hearing this episode today, you'll be encouraged to reconsider. So by now you're probably wondering what the myths are and you're saying to yourself, come on, get on with it, hurry up, tell us what they are. So here they are. Myth number one. People of color cannot be racist. Myth number two, people of color cannot be racist because they don't have power. And myth number three, changing individuals is a prerequisite to changing policies. That's it. I mean, there they are. Those those are the three big ideas that I used to believe, but I'm now labeling as false. And there's so much more to unpack and expand on for each of those, so enough set up. Let's get to it. You know, how have I come to determine that people of color can, in fact, be racist? I definitely have to say that when it comes to these three ideas, this one has definitely been the biggest game changer for me. Some might think it's silly that I didn't already think this, while others might think it's preposterous that I've decided to embrace this idea, but I have. And honestly, my reasoning comes down to me adopting a new definition of what it means to be racist. And if you follow the blog for any amount of time or you're someone who 
I've had a conversation with about race before. You're probably familiar with how important I think it is to have a definition for the word. And that's something I'm still very adamant about. I mean, I might even be more adamant about it now than I was before. Having a definition is absolutely critical in order to honestly examine and evaluate our own behaviors, our own actions. It allows us to just objectively assess ourselves. But I've discovered that maybe it's that fear of what that objective evaluation might reveal in people that prevents some from coming up with a definition. So what about my definition of racist? I've shared that in the past, and I've said that it's somebody that's leveraging racism or doing something to maintain racism. But I've decided that leaves a lot of room for ambiguity, and it's not thorough. So I've retired that definition, and I've chosen to adopt Ibram Kendi's. But before getting to his, I think, you know, it's important to establish some others because there's a few concepts that build on each other, and they're all included in his definition. So first, let's define racial inequity. What is racial inequity? That's when two or more racial groups are not standing on approximately equal footing. So what does that mean? That means, well, in the time of slavery, a racial inequity would have been, in fact, slavery. Uh, You know, black people were not on equal footing when it came to citizenship. They didn't have equal rights for things like owning property or voting. And then in the time that followed slavery, let's say in Reconstruction and Jim Crow, black people weren't afforded equal access to things like education and housing and legalized segregation exists. And a present day example would be the racial wealth gap where You know, the racial wealth gap reflects major disparities when it comes to having assets and wealth between races. Those are all examples that illustrate racial inequities and how races are not sharing equal footing. But I really think it's super important to understand the difference between equality and equity. Equality is ensuring the exact same access or treatment for all people. But simply providing equality does not always result in equity across groups of people. I think a clear example to me involves a rule where my wife works. She works for a healthcare organization where most employees work at hospitals and treat patients at the bedside. So the typical work week for a bedside staff or at least a nurse, an RN, would involve three 12-hour shifts over the span of a week. But while most employees work at the hospital at the bedside, there are employees that work at outpatient clinics, which are open during more traditional business hours, like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. So employees at those clinics typically work five eight-hour shifts over the span of a week. Now, at this organization, they use a point system to track employee misbehavior. And after so many points, employees get reprimanded. So... Let's say, for example, an employee calls out sick, they're given one point. But let's say you're sick and you have to be out for multiple days. Well, the good news is you don't get a point for every single day that you're out of work. Instead, the organization has a rule that says employees will only get one point for each three consecutive shifts they're unable to work. And maybe the number three makes sense if you work at a hospital at the bedside because it corresponds to a typical work week. But hold on, if you work at an outpatient clinic and you're out for a week because you're sick, based on the rule, you'll get more than one point against you. And some would say that's definitely not fair, and I would agree. But I mention it because I think it points out that even though the rule provides equality among employees, because everybody gets one point for missing three consecutive shifts, clearly the rule does not result in equitable treatment of all the employees because the effects are different based on where you work. Now, that's obviously not an example of racial inequity, but I do think it's a good representation of inequity nonetheless. So maybe we can just call that workforce inequity. Okay, so that's racial equity. What about a racist policy? What is that? Well, Kendi says it's any measure that produces or sustains racial inequity between racial groups. So a policy is anything like a rule or a law or anything that governs people. And to me, that's pretty straightforward. It's a policy that produces or sustains racial inequities. So if that's the case, then an anti-racist policy should come as no surprise to be any measure that produces or sustains racial equity between racial groups. And at this point, I had to remind myself that, okay, that makes sense because when it comes to being anti-racist, there is no neutral ground 
when it comes to racism. There's no such thing as not racist. So it makes sense to me that there's only racist policies and anti-racist policies. But then even to reinforce that idea even further, Kendi gets real bold and he says, there's no such thing as a non-racist or race-neutral policy. Every policy in every institution, in every community, in every nation is producing or sustaining either racial inequity or equity between racial groups. When I came across that, I was like, wow, really? There's no such thing as a neutral policy? And, you know, I started thinking about it, and the more I thought about it, as bold as it sounds, the more I came to agree with him. I think it's right. And if you disagree, if you think that's not the case, I would offer the challenge of trying to find an example of a policy that you think is, in fact, race-neutral when it comes to the results. To me, it made sense when I went back and thought about that policy at my wife's job about the number of days an employee can be out sick. That policy clearly produces inequitable outcomes among employees, but there's something interesting about the policy. It does not explicitly identify categories of employees based on where they work. And I would like to believe that those who made the policy didn't make it with the intention or the purpose of treating employees differently. But regardless, it still results in workforce inequity. And that's when I realized Policies don't even have to explicitly declare different groups of people in order for them to affect people differently. Nor does there have to be intent in order to produce the inequities. And since that's the case, it made sense to me that every policy everywhere is either producing and sustaining either equity or inequities among people. I think, you know, in order for this rule at my wife's job to produce workforce equity, it would need to be rewritten with intentional language that defines employee categories and specifies how many days somebody can be out sick in relation to where they work or something along those lines. It would have to be very intentional with its language. And that's what anti-racist policies are. They're very specific with their intentions because they are focused on very specific outcomes. Whereas racist policies, they can be void of racial language. And I think they often are. I mean, take, for example, the requirement of needing a driver's license in order to vote. To some, this might sound just like a basic requirement, but to a lot of people, simply needing it is a design tactic of voter suppression that disproportionately affects people of color. So how is that? Why do I think that such a basic requirement results in racial inequities? Well, would it surprise you to know that not everyone has a driver's license? I mean, to some people, owning and maintaining a car is honestly just too expensive. So literally, they don't even need a driver's license. Especially if someone has friends or things like Uber and Lyft where they can get around easily. Or especially if you live in a city with decent public transportation. I mean, you just don't need a car. So maybe you don't even need a driver's license. So let's say you want to get a driver's license. What does it take? Well, in the state of Georgia, you need either a passport or a birth certificate. And I know it might sound surprising again to some people, but not everyone has a copy of their own birth certificate, much less a passport. I used to have a roommate who, for years, never had a copy of his own birth certificate because he didn't need it. I mean, how often have you needed a copy of your own birth certificate? Yeah, you needed to get a driver's license, But I would be skeptical if you're somebody out there with a copy of your birth certificate at home just for the purpose of getting a license if you lost it. I mean, you don't need it until you need it. And some people just don't have it. So what else do you need for a driver's license? You need either a social security card or a W-2 or pay stub or something that has your social security number on it. So back to my former roommate. If he didn't have his birth certificate, do you think he had his social security card? Spoiler alert, no, he did not. Now, lucky for him, he did have a job, so if he needed to, he could use a check stub or something with his social security number on it. But imagine if someone doesn't have a job or they don't have a W-2 or a pay stub. What, what would they do? You know, I guess you would have to request a copy of your social security card. But guess what two of the most common forms are that are needed to get a social security card? That's right, a driver's license and a birth certificate. 
So anyway, back to the license. The last thing you need is two documents that show your name and the address to put on the driver's license. Now those things can be something like a bank statement or a utility bill. So back to my roommate again. Yes, he did have a bank account at the time, but in fairness, not everybody does. That's why places like check cashing businesses exist. But his bank statement is just one document. What would he use for the second one? I don't know, because all the bills were in my name for the whole time we lived together. And I don't think that's really uncommon. I mean, especially in places where lots of people live together with roommates or large families live together. I mean, everybody just can't have multiple utility bills in their name. So what do they do? And, you know, as for my friend, he's a great roommate. And not just, you know, because he paid all the bills on time. I mean, he's more than capable. He worked hard. He had a long time, successful job. So even with all those things for him, I can't help but wonder if he lost his driver's license, what would he have done? Even with his W-2, he still didn't have a birth certificate and maybe not two bills in his name. And yes, he was black. Now, while that might not sound relevant to you, I would ask, what racial demographic do you think is most represented when you think of people who might see owning a car as too expensive or who might lean on public transportation rather than own a car or maybe someone who might have a harder time coming up with things like birth certificates, social security cards, W-2s from jobs, multiple utility bills, bank statements. And it's for all those reasons that people think requiring a driver's license to vote creates racial inequities. And I'm not arguing by the way, about the reasonableness of the rule, all I'm saying is it's producing inequitable outcomes with regards to race. What do you think? Okay, so that was a whole lot on inequities and policies. What about things like racist ideas? I think those are important to consider because obviously not all instances of racism are the results of rules or policies. You know, I think of things like Wearing a KKK hood or a shirt with a swastika on it, you know, those things aren't directly related to a policy or creating inequities. But I think most of us would agree it's still racist. So how is that? Well, that's because it represents a racist idea. And that's any idea suggesting one racial group is inferior or superior to another racial group. And I think that totally applies and makes sense when thinking about those wearing a KKK hood or shirt with a swastika on it because those people would be demonstrating their belief that the white race is superior and that others are inferior. And it's that idea of superiority versus inferiority that relies on a hierarchy, a racial hierarchy, because one thing can't be greater than or less than another without a hierarchy or a, you know, a value system. And Kendi even elaborates on this and says racial ideas argue that the inferiorities and superiorities of racial groups explain the racial inequities. In other words, racist ideas know that there are racial inequities in the world, and they think that those inequities exist because of the racial hierarchy that's in play. So I know that sounds a little wordy. Uh, what if we go back to that workforce inequity example from earlier? So the argument would suggest that the workforce inequities do exist, but they exist because of a workforce hierarchy, which means some employees are more valuable than others based on where they work. And hopefully you're like me and would say, uh, yeah, that's wrong. That's not true. All employees are equal regardless of where they work. It's actually the sick day policy itself that's responsible for this workforce inequity. And that's the argument represented by an anti-racist policy, which says, Racist policies are the cause of the racial inequities. So all of that, okay, that explains racial inequities, racist policies, racist ideas, all those things. Okay, so let's put them all together, circle all the way back to one of the first words that I've adopted a new definition for, and that's racist. And I'm, just like the others, using Kendi's definition, which is one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. When I first read that, I was like, wow. I mean, it's just so simple, you know? I can't I can't seem to argue with it. It's even though it's so concise, it's so all-encompassing. 
I mean, a racist is someone who is supporting a racist policy through their actions. Okay, yeah. Or it's someone who is allowing a racist policy to remain in effect without obstructing it. Okay, that's inaction. Yeah. Or it's someone who is simply expressing a racist idea. Okay, yeah, it's that too. It's covering, you know, both individuals who are expressing things and the support of racist policies. And of course, it has the concept of inaction, which is the basic foundation of being not racist. So if that's the definition of a racist, I think it makes sense then that he gives kind of the opposite for his definition of an anti-racist, which is one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. I mean, it's just so clear, you know, to be an anti-racist is to be active in opposition. One can be a racist by being passive, but not anti-racist. That takes action. So that's why the concept of inaction is missing from that definition. We're either supporting racist ideas or we're supporting anti-racist ideas. We're either permitting or promoting racist ideas or we're permitting or promoting anti-racist ideas. There is no middle ground. There's no neutrality. You know, there's no such thing as not racist. What we permit, we promote. I don't know if that's a famous quote or not, but I heard it recently and it's just resonated with me. It made me go back to that same workforce inequity example at my wife's job. You know, she knows that the policy results in inequity, but she also knows that unless she actively objects to it, she's allowing it to remain in effect. So in essence, you know, if she is permitting it, she is promoting it. Oh, and by the way, she works at an outpatient clinic which means she's one of the employees who is unfairly affected by the policy. And that thought just seemed to stay with me for some time, just kind of like hover around in my mind. I mean, she is suffering from the policy that is producing an inequity. And yet she is not opposing it. And that's not an indictment on her. I'm not saying that she needs to speak up or anything. What I'm saying is it made me wonder if that same principle applies to other things. I guess I was a little shocked to think that it's possible for someone to suffer from inequity and not be opposed to it. And then I started to wonder, what if someone suffered from an inequity and not only did they allow it with passivity, is it possible to actually actively endorse it? And then I thought back to the podcast where I asked Jessica... If me simply being male automatically made me sexist and how I was naively asking the question in relation to me and only me and how I was questioning whether all men are sexist, but it never occurred to me in that moment that a female could express a sexist idea against other females. But then I heard a female friend share with me that she used to think females were biologically less qualified or capable of being successful and effective leaders in the workspace. And I remember thinking to myself, what, really? I remember being so surprised in that moment, but also awakened, I guess, to the idea that clearly females can in fact be sexist. And not just be sexist against men by saying females are superior, they can be sexist and view other females as inferior. And I remember in that moment thinking, how might this apply to racism? Because if it applies to sexism, that sounds like a reasonable conclusion. And then I thought of another conversation from farther back that I had with a friend of mine who is a black male. And he was referencing his contempt for black-on-black -black crime. And I remember being taken back in that moment because I was so shocked that a black person would refer to the idea of black-on-black -black crime, which is a racist idea on its own. I mean, it implies that there's a hierarchy of crime based on race. There's no such thing as white-on-white -white crime. That's just crime. But the phrase black-on-black -black crime refers to some different category or, or some version of crime that's thought of or viewed differently. And then I also thought of my friend Kadir, who shared on the previous podcast his vulnerable story when he encountered Aborigines in Australia. And he admitted his own moment of racial bias where he questioned if Aborigines were as smart as us. 
and honestly, it didn't matter who he meant by us, whether it was Western people or American people or even black people. None of it mattered because the idea was still a momentary question of whether Aborigines were inferior to some group. But Kadir is black, and so is my other friend. And then it all started to come together with one epiphany when I reminded myself that there's no such thing as neutral when it comes to racism. I think that being anti-racist requires active opposition. So does that mean that I think that all people of color are being anti-racist all the time? Of course not. So if that's the case, and after all these other stories, then of course people of color can be racist. How have I thought that they couldn't? How have I thought that I couldn't? And of course, this idea is also made possible with this new definition of racist, one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. Nothing in that definition seems to imply a person of color cannot be racist, and in fact, they are racist sometimes. And of course, the definition of racism just seemed to bring it home for me. Previously, I've said it's a system of practices and beliefs or actions that preserve the idea of a racial hierarchy where white is the dominant race. But I've decided to retire that definition as well and adopt Kendi's again, which says that racism is a marriage of racist policies and racist ideas that produces and normalizes racial inequities. I'll say that one one more time. Racism is a marriage of racist policies and ideas that produces and normalizes racial inequities. I mean, just like his, for, his definition for racist, obviously, I think that's such a great definition. It's so concise and so comprehensive. But I think the thing that struck me the most about it was it didn't mention the white race at all, nor did it say that the white race is the dominant race. And I think that by removing that portion, it makes his such a more appropriate and applicable definition for racism on a global scale, which is something that I've heard from several people as a critique of my previous definition. One person in particular pointed out how my definition didn't apply to things like the situation with the Uyghur and Chinese people. But this one actually does apply to that, and it can apply to that. But... Even though this particular definition doesn't point out white as the dominant race, and even though I now believe people of color can be racist, I still believe racism in America is heavily based on the idea that Western people, and Americans specifically, have been conditioned to see white as the dominant race, and that the white race is often viewed as superior or believed to be superior to others. Which means that even when I think people of color are being racist, they are typically doing so against other people of color. Sure, there may be some people of color out there who are advocating for black supremacy, and that is certainly racist, but I think that's very uncommon. I think the racist policies that are in play tend to produce racial inequities, and those inequities tend to have favorable outcomes for white people which means that when most people of color are being racist against other people of color, they are expressing ideas that they too have been conditioned to see other people of color as inferior. And like I said, this was, I don't know, this thought was a game changer for me because it was just so heavy and profound and eye-opening. But at the same time, it was kind of like depressing. I mean, I don't know. It, it was hard to hear because it means that People have been conditioned to believe they are inferior. And when it comes to people of color being racist against other people of color, there is one common narrative that emerges often, and it's one Kendi describes as assimilationist thinking. And it suggests that people will be granted equality eventually once they're able to be assimilated into the dominant culture. Once someone is able to learn and behave in a way that is deemed appropriate by the dominant culture, then eventually everybody will see them as worthy of equality and dignity and value because they've shown people that they deserve it. And if you're like me, you might say that 
the racist undertones of that are super clear. Even when you hear that, you don't think people would say things like that out loud. But to that, I would ask, have you ever heard someone say, but if they would just learn to speak English, or if only they would just study harder and focus more in school, or maybe even something like, if only they could stop committing so many crimes, then eventually people would stop seeing them as the problem. And once people stop seeing them as the problem, then perhaps more people will finally see them as fully dignified and valuable human beings. Or maybe have you ever said any one of those things? I mean, these are things I've heard not just white people say, but people of color say, even black people say. People say, if they would just stop behaving in a certain way, or if they would adopt a more accepted behavior, then eventually the hate and the resentment would just go away. And this is an idea referred to as suasion that implies that people can be persuaded away from their racist ideas once they see enough people of color behaving in more respected and reputable ways. And this is racist for a number of reasons, but obviously also false. First, it's leveraging individuals as representatives of an entire race, and then it's resting the entire success and failure of a race on the behavior of those individuals. I mean, are we really trying to condemn an entire race as inferior based on an individual or a small minority? Even if you know one or several Latinx people who don't speak English, is it reasonable to say that all Latinx people don't speak English? Even if you know a few black children who appear to be struggling in school, does it seem reasonable to say that all black children don't study hard enough or try hard enough in school? Or is it reasonable to say that all people of color are committing crimes as though they're more genetically predisposed to do that? Certainly not. These are all false and racist ideas. But that doesn't stop people from believing them. It doesn't stop people from hearing a story about one individual and then somehow extrapolating that into a larger idea and then thinking that that somehow makes them more understanding of an entire race. People watch one video involving a Hispanic immigrant or read one article by a black politician or have just one person of color in their life and then use that as a reference for all Hispanic people or all black people or what have you. I've seen people do this. I've even done this. But when I stop and step back, I think most of us would agree that we don't consider ourselves to be representatives of our entire race. I don't know you or what race you identify with, but are you comfortable and in agreement that your story and experiences and opinions are sufficient to represent everyone who identifies with your race? So why would it be any different when it comes to people of color? And like I said, I'm not trying to implicate white people. I'm saying that people of color I personally know and I myself have bought into this idea. And it reminds me of something my wife heard from a black commentator describing what it's like to be out at a restaurant in public and seeing a white person explode into a tirade for all to see. A typical response is something like, man, that white person sure is acting crazy. But if it's a black person in the same situation who is having the outburst, a typical response, even from a person of color, might be, why is this person doing this? It's making all of us look bad. And it's not just racist for a white person to see the black person and use it to represent all black people. It also represents the acceptance of a racist idea if a person of color sees it and thinks the same thing. But as I've come to realize, and I've been ignoring for so long, that's not just entirely possible. It actually does happen. Also, not only is it racist to say if only they would just learn to speak better or achieve greater success in school or at their job or what have you, not only is that racist because it's referring to a group based on an individual, it's putting all of the responsibility of overcoming the adversity and the unequal footing solely on that person. And it's ignoring the racist policies in play that are producing the racial inequities. It's putting all the emphasis on people of color to prevail despite their circumstances in order to be considered as, or treated as equals. Which means people of color are expected to work even harder to change the minds and hearts of others. And I just think that's absurd. 
No person or race should have to do anything in order to attain racial equality or justice. Everybody should be afforded the dignity and value of being a full human being, regardless of whether they learn to speak fluent English or regardless of how great their study habits are in school. And I'm reminded again of the conversation with Kadir, where he described running a foot race where some of the participants are people of color and are being weighted down by cinder blocks. Expecting people to work harder is to expect them to be stronger, to be strong enough in order to overcome the additional weights of the cinder blocks. And then the idea says that when others finally do see them win the race, that others will finally acknowledge their equal ability and admit the cinder blocks were an unfair obstacle. Except that's not what happens. If someone is able to somehow win the race, even with the cinder blocks, people watching the race label them as extraordinary, as exceptions to the rule, not as proof that equality is deserved by everybody wearing the cinder blocks. And then on top of that, some of those very same people of color who have managed to somehow win the race despite the cinder blocks, they might see themselves as evidence that it's possible to triumph and will look back at those unable to do it as though they're not working hard enough or not doing enough. And all the while, no one is pointing out that the cinder blocks are what's limiting people's ability to win the race. But sadly and truthfully, I think it's common to think like this, even among people of color. Like I said, I've had thoughts like this before. But I've come to realize that we should be focusing on the racist policies themselves, the cinder blocks to ensure that everyone has approximately equal footing so that everyone is on a more level playing field. Would you agree? I mean, what do you think? When we see instances like these foot races and they have disparate outcomes, either something is wrong with the person who's trying to run the race or there's something wrong with the rules that are governing the race. And to be anti-racist is to believe that there's nothing wrong with the person, with racial groups. No one is superior or inferior which means the only possible explanation or reasonable explanation is the rules that are governing the race. And none of this is meant to say that some individuals can't be better or can't improve their individual station in life. Yes, they can. And it totally makes sense on an individual level to encourage and promote someone to strive to be better so that that individual can be uplifted. But it's an entirely different thing to make those same demands for an entire race. And I think this same concept, the same principle, even applies to people's concern with police brutality against people of color. You know, as we see people speaking out against the tragedy involving Jacob Blake, that just as it's not reasonable to see the behavior of one person of color, it's not reasonable to see the behavior of one police officer and extrapolate that to say that's how all police officers behave. And I don't think that's what people are saying. At least the people that I know, that's not what they're saying. But perhaps there are policies in place that we can address that will influence the outcomes to be more equitable so that people of color don't feel like there's disparate outcomes that are attributed to police behavior. It's not about whether police are bad people. That's not the problem. It's, hey, let's talk about the policies. Let's talk about the training. Let's talk about the procedure. Let's talk about how we've all been consuming racist ideas, and that might be influencing our behavior sometimes, you know? But we shouldn't use the behavior of one individual to ever implicate an entire group. And I think when it comes back to people of color being racist, I think that was just really eye-opening for me that even people of color think this way. And then I think even for people that I know, they believe in this idea that people of color can prevail over racism if they just work hard enough. They can just prove to more people that they deserve equality, that if they do all that, then racism would somehow fade away. But my own friend and family who are saying this, they have somehow managed to win the race despite the center blocks attached to them. And even they acknowledge that they still suffer from racism. So how does it make sense that they would believe this? These are people who, despite their trials of racism in their own lives, 
have been able to achieve what some might consider a successful status or maybe even rise to a certain class, and yet they are still facing racism today. So how does someone like that believe that if others work hard enough that they can convince or persuade away racist ideas? I mean, I just struggle with believing that so hard. But as Kendi profoundly says, racist ideas love believers, not thinkers. <laughs> and I think there's just so much truth in those six words. And this might be me getting a little sidetracked for a minute, but I think the significance that people give, even to the shade of people's color, is a prime example of a racist belief that defies logic. And it's not just white people who pay attention to it. Even people of color do it. Even I do it. Even I change the color of my own emojis that I use in text depending on the season of the year because I'm more tan in the summertime than in the wintertime. And that might sound so silly to some people, but even I have come to believe that my color is not only significant to me, it's significant to other people. And I would add that the majority of my own family has said that they've considered me white growing up. And maybe they still do, which I find a little... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but whether they see me as brown or not, I've come to know that not only do I see myself as brown, the rest of the world does too, even if they don't. But all of that just goes to show how race, something constructed by man, just doesn't abide by logical rules, you know? I think of the the one-drop rule, or even how recently people have made the biggest deal over whether Kamala Harris is officially black or not, how people are debating whether she's considered black enough to be down for the struggle. And it's so fascinating to me how some feel not just compelled, but they feel like they're the authority to tell someone else how they should identify racially, especially when it's white people saying how others should identify racially. And then I wonder if those same people might say that they think they're colorblind. But although, you know, in fairness, there were people of color saying it about Kamala Harris too, and I guess that's furthering my belief that, yes, people of color can, in fact, be racist. And I know that might be a whole lot, but like I said, that that's just a little of the insight as to why I've come to believe that, that people of color are not to be excluded from being racist. And for me, again, it goes all back to having a definition, which I just think is so very important. If we really want to consider ourselves anti-racist, we need an honest and objective definition that we can use to hold ourselves accountable. And I've come to believe that the most important aspect of creating a definition is to adopt one that includes you and your race, whatever that is. Because even though not all scholars use the same definition, I have noticed that to be a common trend. I was listening to a conversation the other day between Robin D'Angelo, who wrote the book White Fragility, which is another great book, by the way, and one to read if you haven't already. But uh, I was listening to her and a conversation she was having with Ibram Kendi, and even she brought up the idea that they both have conflicting definitions of racist. More specifically, D'Angelo was saying how her definition says that people of color cannot be racist while acknowledging that Kendi said they could. But what I found to be so fascinating is that they both agreed it actually doesn't matter because they both share the same common goal, which is to dismantle racism. And they agreed their definitions differ because they're talking to different audiences primarily. D'Angelo said she's primarily talking to white people and trying to convict them in the idea that they need to embrace their role when it comes to anti-racism. And at the same time, Kendi's primary audience is black people, and he doesn't want them to remain passive. He wants black people to actively oppose racism. So in the grand scheme, does it really matter that their definitions aren't the exact same? If they're both trying to dismantle racism, can't they both move forward together collectively, even when their definitions differ? I think so. And like I said, they both use definitions that implicate them. They don't want to exclude themselves from the possibility that they could also express racist ideas or support racist policies. Because like I was saying, we've all been conditioned by breathing in this racist smog for so long that none of us are exempt from racism. 
So if you're someone who already has a personal definition and it's one that's different from Kendi's, you know, that's great. That's awesome. I love to hear that. But I would ask, is it one that can include you? And if not, I would ask, why not? You know, another quote by Kendi, I'm referencing him a lot, but like I said, he's just a lyrical genius and an anti-racist thought leader, and he has so many great quotes. And this one says, To be racist is to constantly redefine racist in a way that exonerates one's changing policies, ideas, and personhood. And I think that's pretty powerful and cuts right to the heart of things, you know. What about you? If you don't have a specific definition, maybe is is that the reason why? Do you fear being implicated and how it might make you feel or what it might mean if somehow you discovered you had racist moments or racist ideas? You know, one other thing I've observed lately in people specifically who don't have a definition or at least a firm definition of racist is that some of those very same people are quick to declare others as racist or label them as racist because someone simply says something that involves race. You know, in other words, like these people, they don't have a definition, much less one that applies to them but somehow they're allowed to label others as racist simply for speaking it. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. Does it make sense to you? Or maybe, I don't know, are you someone who has done that? If so, you know, I might sound like a broken record, but I would encourage you to come up with a definition. And if you don't have one, why not adopt Kindy's? I just think to be anti-racist is to be honest, is to admit your racist flaws, to hold yourself accountable. And as Kathy said on the previous podcast, when she was quoting Kendi, she said, you know, the heartbeat of racism is denial. The heartbeat of anti-racism is confession. And that's what I want to do. That's how I want to be for myself to no longer deny when I'm being racist, to confess when I'm being racist, which means I need a definition that includes me. And to be racist isn't a permanent label. I think I've said this before, too. It's not a fixed state of being. If you tell one lie... Are you permanently branded a liar for the rest of time? Or do you say, okay, if I said a lie, I should probably confront myself, address that, and try to act differently in the future. I don't understand why being racist is so different. <laughs> okay, I know that's, that's a whole lot on why I think people of color can be racist. And you might be thinking there's still two more myths to go. <laughs> don't worry, I promise they're... They're much simpler and shorter explanations, especially after sharing about, you know, my evolved thinking on what it means to be racist. So the second myth is people of color cannot be racist because they don't have power. And honestly, this one is easy to abandon simply because I say people of color can actually be racist. So technically that alone already proves this to be false. But on top of that, this idea also assumes that only white people have power. Which means if that's the case, then only white people are capable of dismantling racism. And that's something else that I think is clearly just not true. Just think of all the people in the civil rights movement. I mean, they were able to get new legislation put in place through nonviolent civil disobedience. And yes, there were some white people involved in the movement. I don't doubt that, or I'm not saying there wasn't. But the movement wasn't only white people. And we clearly know, you know, the names of famous Individuals like Dr. Martin Luther King and John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, Ralph Abernathy, Andrew Young, Rosa Parks, Shirley Chisholm, you know, all these famous black people, even black people in Congress, in as mayors, as governors, as police chiefs, as school board members, as judges. I mean, it's naive at best and racist at worst, I think, to think that none of them had equivalent power as other white people in those same positions. And, you know, Kendi describes this same idea and gives a litany of examples of other people of color in prestigious positions. So to believe that people of color have no power is to say that they're literally defenseless, and that's just not true. Now, people of color might have limited power because there's not as many people of color as CEOs or millionaires or in Congress, but it doesn't mean that they're powerless. And honestly, I just didn't realize that in order for me to believe this idea that that's also to freely admit that only white people have all the power. And clearly that's a lie and one I'm choosing to no longer believe. And that leaves one final myth that changing individuals is a prerequisite to changing policies. 
And I do want to emphasize that I'm not saying there isn't value in trying to change the hearts and minds of individuals. There certainly is. You know, I'm a Christian and I believe in the redemption of a changed heart. And I also started this blog with the idea of promoting awareness, both in myself and in others, to further educate myself and offer new ideas and perspectives to others. So clearly I'm also an advocate for the expansion of our minds. So I'm not saying there's no value in changing individuals. But what I am saying is that changing individuals is not required in order to change the policies that result in racial inequities. And just like the previous two myths, my new perspective on this one isn't meant to excuse me, but I think it further implicates me and calls me to be even more critical of myself. Because by choosing to not believe in this one, I have to admit that this blog, for all that it is, for all that I hope it can be one day, me simply writing these posts and recording podcast episodes and posting on social media, those things aren't necessarily going to result in systemic change. And you might be thinking to yourself, but didn't you write and make some posts about Confederate monuments and flags? And yes, you are absolutely right. I did share my ideas on those things, and I'm still all for those changes. But now I see that Yes, there is value in doing that, and those would be signs of progress if we change those things. The progress would be related to the changing of individual hearts and minds. Addressing monuments and flags doesn't do anything to institutionally address the racial wealth gap. It doesn't address disparities with unemployment by race, and it certainly doesn't address the racial inequities with voter registration that I was talking about earlier. Changing those things requires activism. It requires introducing new legislation and lobbying for the legislation and promoting new policies that produce racial equity. And while coming to the conclusion that people of color can be racist was probably the biggest game changer for me, coming to this realization was probably the most convicting because it really caused me to reconsider just what it means to be anti-racist. And then to honestly evaluate if I'm actually being anti-racist, not just with my words and suggestions, but with my actions. And while I'm, you know, thinking and looking at myself and saying, am I doing enough? I read this quote by Kendi who says, changing minds is not a movement. Critiquing racism is not activism. Changing minds is not activism. An activist produces power and policy change, not mental change. If a person has no record of power and policy change, that person is not an activist. <laughs> Jeez. When I read that, you know, I just sat there staring at the page for a while. And I was just thinking about my own self and how that might sound harsh. Or maybe harsh is the wrong word, but yeah, maybe it sounds intimidating or like a very high standard. But to me, it was one that I agreed with, and I thought it was a reasonable standard to hold myself to, to truly assess and monitor myself, because the ultimate goal of equality isn't one that comes easy. You know, it's one that will take active opposition against racism. It will take establishing new policies. I think back to the Civil Rights Movement, to things like the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Those things weren't implemented because someone wrote a strongly worded letter that convinced the powers that be to enact them. You know, they weren't passed because so many hearts and minds of individuals in the South finally admitted that segregation and racism were morally wrong and that they wanted to eliminate racism. So why have I been thinking that those things have to happen first before policy can be changed? Changing individuals is great to change our immediate spheres of influence, to change our local communities, but to truly produce lasting change to produce change that addresses the masses who are suffering from racial inequities, we need new policies. And getting new policies requires having the courage and the strength. It requires having a certain willingness to say, we're not going to let the racist policies remain in effect. We're going to protest them until we're able to implement new anti-racist policies. New anti-racist policies that produce racial equity when it comes to opportunity and resources afforded to people of color. 
And yes, like I said, that is undeniably intimidating. It sounds difficult. It sounds tiring. It sounds exhausting. But I think that's what we're called to do, especially if we consider ourselves anti-racist. And if I'm honest, you know, I'm not, I'm still, I've been thinking this for a while and I'm still not quite sure what it means even for me because I certainly have no intentions of shutting things down with the blog. I mean, I'm obviously going to keep publishing and posting because I do see value in it. And maybe one day it can actually help change someone, even even if it only ever changes one single person. To me, that would be incredible and it would mean that the blog was a success. But all of that is about changing individuals. And I also want to promote policy change. And so right now I'm just not too sure of where to start or how to go about making that happen, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to try because I'm definitely going to try. So that's it. (laughs) Those are the three myths that I'm choosing to no longer believe anymore. That people of color cannot be racist, that people of color cannot be racist because they don't have power, and that changing individuals is a prerequisite to changing policies. What do you think? Have you previously believed those things, or do you still believe those things? If so, you know, I hope I was able to offer some new ideas and maybe gotten you to rethink or encourage you to examine your own racial biases, especially if that's something you've never done before. But at the very least, if you take one thing away from this entire episode, it's that having a definition for racist and racism is imperative, especially if you consider yourself to be anti-racist. Because to be anti-racist, it means you have to do the work, and the work involves honestly evaluating yourself to admit, to confess when you have racist moments, when you give in to racist ideas, and then when you do, recognize them and change. You know, I really feel like the nation almost came to a complete stop back at the end of May when George Floyd died. And I was encouraged by a lot of new interest in racial justice from people who maybe haven't been interested before. But even then, I knew back then, just like other times in the past, that interest eventually would start to fade in some people. And hopefully it hasn't completely faded. And hopefully... You know, some who consider themselves new to the anti-racist cause are still somewhat interested. And hopefully we cannot let this be a moment. We can make it a movement. But in order for it to be a movement, we have to be able to see. We have to be able to identify racism when we see it. And I would argue that we really can't do that unless we can define racist and racism. Because only then will we know what we're looking for. And also don't buy into this idea that simply talking about race is somehow racist. That is a lie. And it's a lie that only perpetuates racism. Race and racism doesn't just go away if we stop talking about it. It's only by talking about it can we identify the things that need to change. But in order for change to be achieved, we have to act. Silence is violence. We have to break away from silence and complicity. That only colludes with the system and allows it to continue. Anti-racism takes active opposition. So act. Don't wait to do it. Just do it. Don't just critique other people's methods without getting involved until you see somebody doing it in a way that you think is good. Just get out there and do something. Even if you're white, get out there and stand against racism. Even MLK said he'd almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom was not the segregationist, but the white moderate who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. If you see someone doing it in a way that you think is inappropriate or ineffective, get out there and show them the better way. Don't just sit on the sidelines. Get out there and be a leader. Because I don't think anybody would say that we have enough anti-racists involved in the cause. No more new members are being accepted. That's ludicrous. It's always the perfect time to recruit new members. This country needs all the anti-racists it can get. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Choose Awareness Podcast. I hope you found it interesting and maybe even heard something from a different perspective that you've never considered before. 
Be sure to follow at Choose to Be Aware on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget that you can always message me either on social media or by emailing me at awarenessisachoice at gmail.com. Please don't be shy. I really do want to hear from you, especially if you ever want to talk about something you heard in the podcast or read on the blog. And speaking of the blog, don't forget to check that out at chooseawareness.org. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter so you can receive automated emails of new blog posts whenever they're published. You can do that by going to chooseawareness.org forward slash subscribe. Well, that's all for today. Until next time, I hope you'll join me in making the conscious decision to choose to be aware.